Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. It's a pleasure to worship with you all and exalt the name of Christ, which as we went through all of the songs that we've done this morning, that I think is what has been happening, is Christ's name has been magnified. And that is why we exist as a church, is to magnify the name of Christ. We get a special opportunity to do that during this Advent season, as we had with the lighting of the Advent candle. We remember particularly Christ's birth. Last week, uh, Pastor Max preached to us uh, with the prophet's candle. Um, And he spoke to us. You may remember, the second service he ended um, by praying and just thanking the Lord. And he had a very simple prayer, and that was... Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. And that's because Christ is our hope. And he was saying that in the context of all of the promises and the prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Christ that came. We heard of our need for a Savior to save us from the wilderness of sin. Now, the people who heard these promises had to wait a long time for those prophecies to be fulfilled. At least a long time as we see it. So think about it. Max spent a lot of time talking about Adam and Eve, right? And even in the midst of God cursing them, God gave them a promise that one of their descendants would crush the head of the serpent. But they died without ever seeing that promise. We've been spending a lot of time talking about Abraham in our Genesis series. God gave Abraham a promise that one of his descendants would bless all of the nations and that the nations would be blessed through Abraham's descendant. But, though Abraham had Isaac and had a fulfillment of a promise in that, he didn't get to see the descendant in his lifetime. Isaac and Jacob lived lived in tents, And then died before they saw the fulfillment of the promise of God to give them the land and to bring the Christ. Moses died without even entering the promised land himself. He just saw it from afar. From across the river. He could see over. But he died and didn't even get to enter the land because of his sin. After that, King David received some promises from God. Remember what God promised to David? He told him that he would establish an everlasting kingdom through one of David's descendants. And David had many sons, but didn't get to see that son. He died. And it would be another thousand years until the king, the descendant that God was speaking to him about, would come finally. Now, to us, it seems like slow fulfillment of promises. That God takes a long time to get around to doing the things that he's told us to do. But we have to remember, first of all, when we're talking about prophecy, what Peter tells us. And that is that God is not slow about fulfilling his prophecies, as we count slowness. But to God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. But God knows our weakness. He knows the weakness of his people. And so he is kind and tolerant to give many, many reminders. And that was one of the jobs of the prophets in the Old Testament, was to remind the people about what God had said and say, yes, it really is coming. 
It may not feel like it to you in your sinful weakness, but God is working and fulfilling His promise. That's why we come to sit under the preaching every week. We are so easily beset by the cares of the world that we need God's word driven into our hearts over and over again. The people of Israel knew this reality, and they needed a reminder at the time of the, uh, the prophet Micah. Okay, we read something from Micah this morning. And this is where we're going to look at, is in this particular prophecy about Christ coming. And so let's look at one place in Micah that we read earlier together. And we'll read the verses surrounding it. It's in Micah chapter 5. You can open up with me there or follow along on the screen behind me. Micah 5, starting in verse 1, says, Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, you have graciously given your word to us to strengthen us, to teach us, to give us hope. We pray that you would convict our hearts now and strengthen us in the hope of Jesus. And we pray that you would change our hearts that we might live according to your commandments and in a way that pleases you. Please work in us by your Spirit and send us your Holy Spirit now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I mentioned that the people of God were in need of a reminder at this time in Israel's history when Micah was prophesying. So for one, like we said, that was because of their weakness and of their sin and their propensity to turn away from God and His commandments. Yet again, the people of Israel had fallen at this time into corruption and idolatry. But that's not all. They also needed a reminder of God's promises to David because things were looking pretty bad in their eyes for Israel and for Judah, for God's kingdom. King David reigned, just to give us perspective, King David reigned in the time around 1000 BC, okay, about 1000 years before Christ came. Micah prophesied about 300 years later, around 700 B.C. Now in that intervening 300 years, from 1,000 to 700, you had a lot of things that happened. The kingdom of David had split into two kingdoms and warred against each other. There was devastating battle and conflict, both with foreign nations around them and between the northern and southern kingdom. And about 40 years before Micah's ministry, the Assyrians had come and begun to destroy, uproot, and take captive the northern kingdom of Israel and to lay waste to the people of God. So things were terrible. And the kings and the people of Israel alike would have been wondering, 
So what about these promises to King David? You know, what about that whole everlasting kingdom thing? All they had seen from David's time was basically this decline and succession of wicked kings with a few bright spots in there, but mostly just this descent into idolatry and turning away from the Lord, which is why God was sending them into captivity. So what happened to the promises for God to set up a descendant of David to establish an everlasting kingdom? Well, God in his kindness and tolerance gave his people hope in the midst of this distress. And that's what we have in Micah 5. As we see, mixed in with prophecies of captivity and destruction and shame that would come upon the people of Israel, we get the promise of a righteous ruler. Just like in the Garden of Eden, in the midst of God's pronouncement of a curse on Adam and Eve, he gives them the glimmering hope of the son who would crush the head of the serpent. We have the same thing in Micah. There's a lot in this prophecy, but we're going to focus on verse 2, since that's the verse that makes reference to Bethlehem, and this is the morning of Advent where we talk about Bethlehem and the significance of what it was, because Scripture makes it very clear it's important that Christ was born in Bethlehem, so we need to understand why this historical detail is important. So we're going to look at verse 2, but we're going to start with the end of that verse. So we all have the first part kind of stuck in our heads every time this year comes around. We know, oh yeah, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, whatever that means, too little, something, something else. And we kind of lose what comes on the, the latter end of that. By the way, Bethlehem Ephrathah, in case you're wondering, uh, is just a way of identifying this Bethlehem. There were apparently multiple towns called Bethlehem. And Micah's just saying, yeah, the one in Judah, the one outside of Jerusalem, not some other Bethlehem, this one. And this was just another name tacked on so that people listening knew, okay, this Bethlehem. So we lose what's on the second half of this verse. And that is, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And now I want to begin, I said to you that this service this morning, we've been magnifying the name of Christ. And I want to begin with the best of my ability to magnify Jesus Christ to you. This passage in Micah points forward to Christ's humility, and that's what Christmas is all about. Is Christ humbling himself by becoming one of us, taking on our flesh. But Christ's humility only makes sense in the light of his unsurpassable glory. We have to understand his glory to understand what he accomplished in his humility, in his humbling of himself. To exalt Christ, we're going to look at one New Testament passage in Colossians. So look with me at Colossians chapter 1. Again, you can turn there, but it should be up on the screen. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, says this about Christ. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He, Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or in heaven. This is one of those places that magnifies and gets to the limits of our language to exalt Christ for us. It talks about Christ having created all things by his power, being there with the Father in the beginning when the world was made. And now when we think about creation, we usually the first thing that comes into our minds is natural things, right? Things in nature, we think of planets, we think of stars, we think of animals and mountains and trees and beautiful sunsets. And that is absolutely one of the things that we should think about. I was talking with Caleb Starr the other day, we were having a conversation about the weather. You know, it wasn't small talk though. <laughs> we were, I don't remember how we got talking about it, but I have this uh, app on my smartphone that has a weather forecast. And it tells me, 10 days ahead of time. Okay, I can look 10 days into the future and see at 4 p.m. next Friday what direction the wind will be blowing and how fast it will be blowing. Okay, now of course you know that's ridiculous. This is actually what the app tells me. But you know, what an absurd thing to think that we could possibly know that. Right? Our best hope of understanding the weather and having a grasp on it is we have a pretty good guess of what's going to happen tomorrow. And even then, it's, it's rough. A rough estimate. And I think this does capture for us the limit of our knowledge because you think about our inability to even predict what's going to happen with the weather. And now imagine controlling the weather. Controlling rain and storms and hurricanes and sunshine and wind and being able to build some sort of machine that would affect the weather. It's crazy. It's massive. And Christ rules over the weather by the power of his hand. And to think of us trying to control or do something about it is like saying, go control the sun. You know, control how much heat the sun puts out. Christ rules over creation as its creator, and he is magnificent and glorious in that. But did you notice in this passage that it doesn't immediately go to those sorts of created things? That's what I expect and what pops into our heads when we think that Christ created all things. But what it goes to talking about says, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I think, huh, that's not what I was thinking of. I was thinking of these big cosmic things out there. But it's talking about Christ ruling over and creating thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities and those things, too, being created for him and by him and through him. Now I want to jump back to the Christmas story. When we read the account of Jesus' birth in Luke 2, there's this really minor character, okay? You might even not notice him. You might just skip over him if you read too fast through Luke 2 like we did earlier. But you may have heard of him. His name is 
Caesar Augustus. Okay? Did you notice the name when we read it? Caesar Augustus. Okay, to give you a picture of who Caesar Augustus was, I want to read to you from something that he himself wrote about his accomplishments. Okay, so leading up to his death, he wrote this inscription that would be posted and built all over the Roman Empire after he died. And it was put up everywhere. And he himself wrote it, and this is what it's called. It's called The Deeds of the Divine Augustus. Okay? It goes on for a little while. I'm leaving parts out, though. When only 19 years old... I initiated and funded an army by which I won liberty for the Republic, when it was bullied by a faction. Because of this, the Senate, with honor-bestowing resolutions, added me to its roles, granting both the right to vote as a consul and the office of pro-preter over soldiers. I drove the men who slaughtered my father into exile with a legal order, punishing their crime, and afterwards, when they waged war on the state, I conquered them in two battles." I often waged war, civil and foreign, on earth and sea, in the whole wide world, and as victor I spared all the citizens who sought pardon. As for foreign nations, those which I was able to safely forgive, I preferred to preserve them than to destroy. About 500,000 Roman citizens were sworn to me. I led something more than 300,000 of them into colonies, and I returned them to their cities. On account of the things... Successfully done by me and through my officers, under my auspices, on earth and sea, the Senate decreed 55 times that there be sacrifices to the immortal gods. Moreover, there were 890 days on which the Senate decreed there would be sacrifices. In my triumphs, kings and nine children of kings were led before my chariot. Three times I gave shows of gladiators under my name, and five times under the name of my sons and grandsons. In these shows, about 10,000 men fought. Twice I furnished under my name spectacles of athletes gathered from everywhere, and three times under my grandson's name. I celebrated games under my name four times, and furthermore, in the place of other magistrates, 23 times. In my sixth and seventh consulates, after putting out the civil war, having obtained all things by universal consent... I handed over the state from my power to the dominion of the Senate and Roman people. And for this merit of mine, by a Senate decree, I was called Augustus. And the doors of my temple were publicly clothed with laurel, and a civic crown was fixed over my door, and a gold shield placed in the Julian Senate house. And the inscription of that shield testified to the virtue, mercy, justice, and piety for which the Senate and Roman people gave it to me. Caesar Augustus militarily, politically, and administratively ruled over a vast empire covering almost the entirety of Europe and North Africa, surrounding the Mediterranean and extending into Asia. This empire endured for hundreds of years, and his very name would go on to be used to name other emperors and kings the whole world over. So why am I talking so much about Augustus? I'll tell you why. Because Augustus is dead. Which is to say, Caesar Augustus was nothing. Caesar Augustus was created for the same reason that all things exist. To bring glory to Jesus Christ. 
God used Augustus to establish and maintain a sprawling empire so that Jesus Christ could use it to advance his own kingdom, which still remains and grows even though Caesar and the Roman Empire have been dead and gone for over a thousand years. Jesus is alive and still reigns. In the history of Christ and of his kingdom, which we read this morning, Caesar Augustus, the great emperor of the ancient world, is a minor character who gets a brief mention. Now, if Christ is that magnificent, if he ruled over and created all things, then why in the world was he born in Bethlehem, of all places? Now, obviously, it was to fulfill this prophecy from Micah, But was God just scrambling to make all of the details fall into place when the time finally rolled around? Was he remembering some of his old promises and came across this old passage in Micah? Out of Bethlehem? Oh no! It's supposed to be something bigger, greater. Let's see if I can make this work. No, Christ was born in Bethlehem for another excellent reason beyond just fulfilling prophecy, which is wonderful. And that is that Christ is magnified in weakness. Christ is magnified, glorified, lifted up in weakness. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 says that God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Caesar Augustus was created to be just one of the many strong things that would be put to shame by the weak to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. So God used one of Augustus's less significant acts, he doesn't make any mention of it in his divine deeds, this census that would raise some funds for the expansion of his worldly domain, but God would use that census to bring a humble carpenter and his bride-to-be to the humble small town of Bethlehem. Now if you think about it, if we understand who Christ is, the magnificent creator of all things, the word, the logos, who holds the universe together by the power of his word, even if Christ had been been born into a royal, noble household, you know, into the highest household of the earth, imagine if Christ were born into the royal line of Caesar. That would have been a huge step down for Christ. Because he rules over all things by his power, and all kings serve him. And so for him to even come down and take on a body, even to be the most exalted earthly king in the world, would have been humbling for Christ and humiliating, because he made the world. For him to take on a body like his creation and even be the greatest would have been humbling. But that's not all he did. It wasn't sufficient unless he was humbled to the uttermost So he came not to Rome, not to a great city, not even to Jerusalem, but to Bethlehem. Now, we need to understand the smallness of Bethlehem, because Micah says, now to you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. So you heard in that account of Augustus' empire that he ruled over hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, he led an army of 500,000 soldiers. Bethlehem, on the other hand, was nothing. 
So one way you can translate this verse in Micah is too little to be among the thousands of Judah, is how the, the King James does it. And in the time of Micah's writing, the people of Israel would have numbered, they would have done their own numbering and census so that they could set up governors and city councils and stuff like that. And so they would have numbered people in thousands, you know, and there would be a thousand and there would be uh, like a district, basically, of a thousand people who would be ruled over and governed. Well, Judah was too little to even be among the thousands. It wasn't even big enough to have it, or sorry, Bethlehem. It wasn't even big enough to have its own district. You couldn't even find a thousand men in this little town. That's how tiny it was. And this, that tiny smallness, would be Christ's glory. Because he wasn't born in a place that he could get glory from. He wasn't born in Rome. He couldn't lay any claim to any earthly kingship that would be great in the eyes of the world. He derived no strength or glory from any human ruler or royal line or dynasty. He wasn't even born in Jerusalem, the city of the great King David. He was of the line of David, but didn't even come from David's strength in the city of Zion. No, Christ went all the way back to David's humility, to Bethlehem, to a town of shepherds and podunk families. Christ got no glory from the town he was born in. And this is glorious because it means the glory was his to bestow. In Matthew chapter 2, it makes reference to this verse. And Matthew says, as the prophet Micah said, But as for you, Bethlehem of Judah, by no means small among the clans of Judah. So Micah says, too little to be among the clans of Judah. And Matthew says, by no means small among the clans of Judah. And we read that and we're like, and you read it in your Bible and it puts it, makes sure you know it's a quote from Micah and you don't understand that what Matthew is saying is Bethlehem was that in Micah's perspective, but from our perspective, the place where Christ came from, Bethlehem is no longer little, no longer small. By no means are you small, Bethlehem, because Christ has come from you. Not because of anything in yourself. You were tiny and insignificant. But now, having been blessed by Christ and his presence, you are great. God's grace and power are magnified when man's power and authority are put to shame. And this bears on more than just the worldly weakness of cities and kingdoms and towns. Jesus didn't just come to be magnified in small towns and insignificant backwoods blue-collar families. Jesus came to be magnified in you and me. He came to be magnified in those who are helpless. Those who are needy. Those who are weak. He came to be glorified in the salvation of sinners. And so the question is, as we come to Bethlehem, is do you boast about your weakness? Now that may sound like a funny question, but here's what the Apostle Paul said when he asked God to take away his weakness. In 2 Corinthians he says, 
And God has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't spend much time boasting in my weaknesses. I do spend a lot of time covering up my weaknesses and my vulnerability. How about you? The last thing we ever want is for our weakness to be exposed. Are you willing to acknowledge your weakness or do you despair every time you're reminded of it? We despise our vulnerability. We hate when we're sick or tired or underappreciated or slighted or confused or bedridden or overwhelmed or insulted or frustrated in our plans. And almost never do we hate those things because they make us feel distant from God or because they hinder us from serving Him. Or because we wish we were stronger to be more effective for Christ's kingdom. No, we hate those things because they make us feel vulnerable. We hate when we're exposed to our own weaknesses and failures because we think we're supposed to be better than that. We get disappointed in ourselves and depressed because we didn't live up to our own expectations or someone else's. We're easily convinced that we can really produce strength and righteousness from somewhere within inside ourselves. And we get disappointed every time that we're told otherwise. We despair because we think too highly of ourselves in the first place. We want to be strong. We want to be capable. We want to be righteous. We want to be recognized. We want glory that comes from somewhere in here that I can lay claim to. But Christ says that He is magnified in our weakness. God's power is perfected in our weakness. It's our vulnerability which draws us near to Christ in the first place. It's in our weakness that he meets us as savior and healer and friend. And so what are you doing when you hide and seek to hide all of your weakness, to hide your sin, to gain the approval of man? You're running away from Jesus Christ. You're making yourself like a proud, dead Caesar, exalted in your own eyes and forsaking the humble Christ. Now this reality comes to bear in how we relate to others. I hope many of you have taken up Max's exhortation to do testimonies in your small groups. Has anybody been doing this? Our small group has been doing testimonies. We've been doing one, one per week for the past four weeks or so. We've gotten through all of the men in our group now. Um, and it's been a wonderful blessing. I'm so thankful that we were reminded to do that. Um, and if your group has been doing that, there's uh, probably a constant theme in all of the testimonies that have been said um, and spoken to each other. And that theme is, I was really strong and gifted, and God was so pleased and impressed by me that he made me his. 
That's what, yeah, that's what all of ours have been, right? No, just the opposite. Every one of us have said, I was weak and helpless, and I don't really know what happened or how I ended up here, but God picked me up and said, walk before me, blameless. I was in sin and running away from God, and God reached down by his glory and majesty and pulled me out. And this is the work of evangelism. It's how we evangelize each other, and it's one of our best ways to evangelize those who don't know Christ yet, is to magnify our weakness. So one of our Chinese students, Lily, professed faith in Jesus Christ just last week. Isn't that wonderful? And do you know when she felt the Holy Spirit change something in her heart? It was while she and her housemates were meeting together and confessing sin to one another. In the midst of the confession of sin and weakness, she saw Christ's grace for her opened up. Isn't that beautiful? Evangelism is a confession of our weakness. Christ is all glorious in creation. He's all glorious when it comes to history and God's sovereign direction of kings and rulers and authorities. But most of all, Christ is all glorious in the work of the salvation of souls. He is the peace of his people. Did you notice that in the Micah prophecy? At the very end of what we read, it said, This one will be our peace. In other words, he'll do lots of great things for us and give us many good gifts, but in the end, he himself will be our peace. Christ is all in all. And so that's the question for us when you read and see that he is the peace of those who are his. Ask yourself, is your peace in Christ Jesus? At the very end of his book, Holiness by J.C. Ryle, which I commend highly to you. It's one of my most marked up and bent books, His Holiness. At the very end, he writes of Christ's excellent supremacy and salvation over and above all Christ's other works. This is what he says. It says, It is the mind of the blessed Trinity that Christ should be prominently and distinctly exalted in the matter of saving souls. Christ is set forth as the Word, through whom God's love to sinners is made known. Christ's incarnation and atoning death on the cross are the great cornerstone on which the whole plan of salvation rests. Christ is the way and the door, by which alone approaches to God are to be made. Christ is the root into which all elect sinners must be grafted. Christ is the only meeting place between God and man, between heaven and earth, between the Holy Trinity and the poor, sinful child of Adam. That's you. That's me. It is Christ whom God the Father has sealed and appointed to convey life to a dead world. It is Christ to whom the Father has given a people to be brought to glory. It is Christ of whom the Spirit testifies and to whom he always leads a soul for pardon and peace. In short, it has pleased the Father that in Christ all fullness should dwell. What the Son is in the firmament of heaven, that Christ is in true Christianity. So is Jesus Christ your peace? Have you found satisfaction in him? 
Are you resting in him and magnifying him day by day in your life? Are your mind and heart set on his glory and his kingdom and his exaltation? You, just like Caesar Augustus, were made for Christ and to bring him glory. And he will be exalted in you if you humble yourself under his hand. I found Max's preaching on the wilderness of sin being so helpful to me last week. That that's what Christ calls us out of. He says, come to me, you, ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Go to him is where we will find our rest. But finding that rest requires that we acknowledge our weakness and our sin day by day. And it doesn't go away. The, the Apostle Paul was a very mature believer and said that he boasts of his weaknesses because then Christ is most glorified. And so look at your weaknesses, whatever they are, those things that cause us to despair, and ask how you can magnify Christ in those things. How can Christ be magnified through your sickness, through the difficulties, the emotional difficulties of raising children? In seeing our weakness when we're opened up to our own sin. How do you magnify Christ day to day? How do you speak in such a way that lifts up his name in the midst of your weakness? We were made for him, and he will be exalted if we humble ourselves under his hand. I'd like to finish just by reading a prayer from the Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers called Christ Alone. It says, O God, thy main plan in the end of thy will is to make Christ glorious and beloved in heaven, where he is now ascended, and where one day all the elect will behold his glory and love and glorify him forever. Now remember that we're living in a time where we have the sure testimony of Christ, but we're also waiting for something, right? Just like those who received Micah's prophecy were waiting for Christ to come and had to trust in the promise We are able to look back on the fulfillment of that promise, but we're waiting for Christ to come back again. When all of the thoughts of our hearts will be laid bare, and the righteous will be divided from the wicked. And let us not forget that as we remember Christ's first coming, that we're looking forward to something too. Though here I love him but little, may this be my portion at last. In this world thou hast given me a beginning... One day it will be perfected in the realm above. Thou hast helped me to see and know Christ, though obscurely, to take him, receive him, to possess him, love him, to bless him in my heart, mouth, life. Let me study and stand for discipline and all the ways of worship out of love for Christ and to show thankfulness. To seek and know his will from love, to hold it in love and daily care for and keep this state of heart. Thou hast led me to place all my nature and happiness in oneness with Christ, in having heart and mind centered on Him, in being like Him in communicating good to others. This is my heaven on earth, but I need the force, energy, impulses of Thy Spirit to carry me on the way to my Jerusalem. Here, it is my duty to be as Christ in this world, to do what He would do, to live as He would live, to walk in love and meekness. Then would He be known. Then would I have peace and death. 
So as we remember Christ's humility in coming to Bethlehem, let us take heart that Christ lifts up weakness and humility. And let's confess our own together as we glorify Christ. Please pray with me. Father, we praise you for sending Christ, the Lord and firstborn of creation, the Creator Himself, to not only take on flesh, but to be born to a humble family in a humble town as a weak and helpless child. We thank you that Jesus has taken on all of our sinness, our temptations and weaknesses, and yet that he was without sin. We thank you that he can sympathize with our weaknesses so that we can come to him for strength and grace in our time of need. We pray that you would cause us to make our lives about exalting his name as we walk and grow in you. Help us now um, to sing to you with full hearts and to focus our minds on the things of Christ in heaven, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.